Andrew, you made my departure from L.A. sound way more noble than it actually was. Um, I am so grateful to be here, as Andrew mentioned, um, just becoming really good friends and just how you guys have just welcomed me and my family. Um, we're very aware that we have no right to be here, but it's just the, the call of God, um, and that's made us incredibly grateful. It kills off entitlement um, in our, our hearts. And I've also felt such a connection uh, with this church in general. As Andrew shared, we share many of the same convictions and values and things that, that we love and believe are absolutely um, important. And for that reason, I'm just so grateful um, just to share this time together. Andrew's prayed for us, but I'd love for you to open to the text that we're going to be looking at um, today, the text that's really going to define our time, which is Romans chapter 12. And the theme, of course, is worship, this life of worship. What does that mean? What does that look like? Why does it matter um, for us? About seven years into um, the church plant in Los Angeles, I hit a wall. I just felt like I started coming apart, which I've learned, by the way, that's typically standard among church planning pastors, the seven-year mark, and then they, like, lose it. (laughs) How old is Grace London? Yeah, you got some time. You got some time. Yeah. But around that seven-year mark, just keep that in mind. Be like, Andrew, how are you? It's year seven. He's like, "Uh, if his eye's twitching, then you know you need to pray. Maybe it's already happening. I don't know. Um, But at that time... uh, I was very grateful that the leadership of our church gave uh, my family and I some time off. I was given a sabbatical season of three months out of the regular rhythm of leadership and, you know, all that was um, happening in the ministry and everything was increasingly complex and it was so, I hate using this word, but I use it every day, busy. Um, And so we were given this time and I was really challenged by uh, one of my pastor friends. I I had this whole agenda, like, I'm going to go off the grid. I'm going to do digital detox, you know, and I'm going to like, you know, read all these books. And one of my pastor friends said, Tim, all you do is read books. You know what you need to do? Take a journal and a Bible and just meet with God. I was like, what? (laughs) Like, (laughs) imagine that. Um, so I took his advice and, you know, we kind of went off the grid. Um, we, we left L.A. and we just kind of really um, disconnected in a, in a healthy way. And one thing I was encouraged to do was I, I'm not that good at journaling. Some of you are like hardcore journalers, like you just journal like eight times a day. And uh, for me, it's definitely more of like a discipline. I have to intentionally bring myself to journal. Like I need to be excited about buying a new moleskin or something just to like get me, you know, over the starting line. I'm like, okay, I got this thing and I got a new pen. Okay, I'm going to do this. Um, but along the way, it was, it was so healthy. It was fruitful. God was just revealing all kinds of things um, in my life. I was just trying to, to keep track of what God was bringing to the surface. And then one day I had this terrible idea. I decided to put what I had learned into two categories. Strengths and weaknesses. I just thought that would be a good idea. I'm going to look back over my journal over the last few months as I've disconnected from ministry. I'm going to look back to all the confessed sins and things that God was making me aware of, and I'm going to put them all, what I've noticed, into these two categories of strengths and weaknesses. So I did that, and I began writing out, okay, what, what do I see as like strengths in my life? I'm writing all of this out. And then I go over to the weaknesses side, much more painful, by the way. Um, you know, I'm just filling that out. And then in that moment, as I finished that list, I had this awareness. It was like a Holy Spirit 
epiphany. All of my strengths were giftings, and all of my weaknesses were character issues. And it was devastating, but in a, in a very healthy way. It was devastating. All, all these areas of strength were, were giftings, like, I can do this, I can teach that, I can lead this. But all the weaknesses were emotional, defensive things that Andrew's already seen on the car ride down here. Um, you know, and then I had another terrible idea. I'm going to take this list to my wife. <laughs> so I did. And I handed it to her and I said, honey, is this true? And I was like, you know, and she read over it and she kind of thought and as graciously as, as she always does, she said, yeah, this is true. Now, I'd like to finish the story by saying, like, I handled it like a strong, mature man, but it was more like a five-year-old. I was like, what do you mean? You know, like, I mean, they're weaknesses. That's a strong word, you know. <laughs> Areas of growth, right? <laughs> like, isn't that how we always spin it? Like, no, these are issues. But here's what I realized in that, and it was the greatest lesson that God taught me. Is it was as if the Spirit of God was saying to me, Tim, these aren't just character issues. These are matters of worship. Because here's what I learned What you revere, you resemble. Whatever is most important in my life and in my heart is going to be reflected and resembled in the way that I live. These character issues, the the way in which we live and conduct our lives, they all flow from what is most important to us. Whatever we revere, we resemble. There's no mistake about it. And... Today we approach this list in in Romans chapter 12. It's an incredible chapter. In fact, many say it's one of the greatest sections in scripture written on Christian conduct. But it is all based on, it all flows from, it all is rooted in this idea of worship. And so Paul begins in Romans chapter 12. And we're just going to look this first section, just the first two verses whole of life is worship. And then our next session, we'll talk about worshiping with our gifts. Paul says, I'm reading from the NIV. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I wonder if you were to take some time um, out of the busyness of London and if you were to, uh, if you don't have a journal, the Christian bookshop is open uh, from 9 a.m. You can go grab a, an amazing Christian journal, I'm sure, with like scriptures on it, you know, and whatnot. Um, lambs. <laughs> Christians are amazing when it comes to marketing. Um, I would encourage you, challenge you even. What would it look like for you to, to write down and say, God, what is it that you want to unearth in my life? Because I know this matters. It's a worship issue. It's never just a character issue. It's never, if it's a sin, it's never just a sin issue. It's a worship issue. What am I worshiping? What am I living for? It matters so much. 
It matters so much. Why does this appeal matter? Make no mistake, Paul begins this chapter with an appeal. He's calling for us to listen. He's calling for us to respond. He says, therefore, I urge you. Now, normally I have points and I love alliteration. I think it's a gift of the Holy Spirit, um, but I'm not going to go there today. I literally just want to work through a few phrases in this passage for our time together in this first session. But I just want to begin with this question. Why does this appeal matter? And I think it matters for at least two, two reasons, because our character and our conduct are both the evidences and expression of our worship. If you want to know what somebody worships, just look at their life. If you want to know who somebody worships, just look at who's around their, their dinner table, the people that they associate with, how they spend their money, how they spend their, their time. Our character, our conduct is so key. That's why in Romans 12, you begin with this call to worship and then it completes and continues with this incredible list of, of character and ethics and conduct and all of that. It is absolutely connected. The way that you live shows what you value. In fact, I heard it said, I can't remember who said it, but they said all Christian ethics is gratitude. All Christian ethics, all the stuff that we're going to talk about today, all the things that the Holy Spirit is calling you to do, all of the, the, the obligations, as it were, listed in Romans chapter 12, they all flow out of, are rooted in, and are based upon our worship of God. And for that reason, it would be a terrible thing, friends, for us to read Romans 12 and think of it as simply a moral to-do list. Like, oh, got to do that. Yeah, tick the box. Okay, done. Love everybody in Grace London. Done. You know, like, generous. Done. Tick that box. Like, don't think of it like that. This is an expression of our worship. Or I would put it like this. These are signs of life. If you want to know that you are truly alive, we believe, Scripture says, if your faith is in Christ, you are born again. You are a new creature in Christ. But the evidence of, of that begins to work out as the Holy Spirit takes the reins of our life and people begin to see that transformation. What should a Christian look like in London? What should our lives actually look like in our great city? What does that look like? How does that actually work out? These are signs of life. But where Paul begins is this. Before we can give ourselves in service to our city, we offer ourselves in worship to our God. Everything else flows from here. Our character flows from here. Our fruitfulness flows from here. There's a phrase that um, has kind of become a a mantra of sorts in my own um, network of churches. And it's a phrase that um, my best friend slash um, pastor, my friend who started our little reality family of churches um, way back, many years back, um, he's just such a dear friend. But there's this phrase that he has used ever since I met him. And it's been so key and so formative. It's very simple. It's simply this, all ministry flows from intimacy. Simple phrase, all ministry flows from intimacy. But it's been so key because so many of my issues, so many of the areas of my life where I am lacking flows from a disconnect from my relationship with Christ. There there begins to be a drifting and then naturally you begin to see that um, result in our character. That's the first thing that's going to go. 
In fact, last year, I'd love to say that since my sabbatical, I've just, you know, been this bastion of maturity. But uh, last summer, uh, we planted a church in Honolulu, Hawaii. Just pause for a moment. And just imagine yourself there. So my wife and I, we couldn't wait to get there. And all the other reality churches, we do this thing where, like, everybody, you know, saves up money and they use their holiday time to go to the city we're going to plant in. And, of course, Honolulu's, like, an easy sell. You know, people are like, yes, I don't even have to pray about it. I'm going. (laughs) So my wife and I, we get there early. Before this whole prayer tour starts, we're going to have teaching. We're going to have prayer meetings. But my wife and I get there early. And it turns out that where we were put up for free of charge was the Hilton. I'm not sad about it at all. We're kid-free because our kids were back, not because we forgot them. Our kids were back with our in-laws. And so my wife and I were there, poolside, palm trees, just, you know, the wind and the sun and the water. We ordered drinks. And I'm like, this is amazing. And my wife turns over to me and she says, honey, I just wanted to take this opportunity to talk about some character issues I've seen in your life. I was like, what? We're in Hawaii. No, I'm not talking about this. I've got my drink, the sun, the palm trees. Like, we earned this. She's like, honey, we need to talk about this. And in humility, I said, yes, dear. I want to grow. After about 10 minutes of arguing. Because my wife understands that the first area in which she's going to see a lack of worship in my life is the way that I'm living my life. It's going to be those, those character issues. And I just want us to begin by seeing the connection. All ministry, all the stuff that Grace London is, is called to do, all the stuff that you are called to do, it's all going to flow from this place of nearness to God. And so Paul begins with this appeal. Why does it matter? It's an evidence of, it's an expression of our worship. And so he begins by saying, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And I just want us to be reminded of the basis upon which this appeal is is made. This is not some heavy-handed, you've got to muster this up. You've got to, you know, depart from God, figure it out, get yourself sorted out, bring yourself back to God, and then present yourself. No, it is based on the mercy of God. We all know in basic Bible study, when you see the word therefore, you have to ask the question, What's it there for? Love it. It never gets old. What is it there for? I mean, think about many of you have read through Romans. What has Paul stated? In the earlier chapters of Romans, Paul has said and explained some of the darkest information about the human heart. Paul spoke about our condition as humanity, our fallen condition that we've exchanged the glory of God and we've worshipped creation rather than creator and we've suppressed and even exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And then he goes on to list out all of the symptoms. What happens when we worship creation rather than creator? Here's what happens, just by way of reminder in Romans. And by the way, as I read this list... Just imagine in your place of work or your university just reading this list out loud publicly. If you want some controversy in your life, here you go. It says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, 
proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. I remind my children of this one. I'm like, well, let's turn to Romans. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Can you imagine reading that in your work? Like, hey, we're doing a Christian Bible study. Would you like to come? (laughs) This is your position. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There's no inspirational self-help talk coming from Paul. Can you imagine if Paul did a TED talk? <laughs> He's like, I'd like to talk to you about the depravity of man. <laughs> you know? And then he just says that. Like everyone would be like, oh, it's not really inspiring. That's God's verdict on humanity. We are guilty and the state we are in requires judgment. That's what we deserve. We deserve the judgment of God. But We've come this far throughout Romans. Of course, he explains and expounds the gospel. And this great reversal has happened. You didn't get the judgment you deserve. You got the mercy of God. I mean, I've been a Christian for almost 20 years and that never gets old to me. I deserved judgment. I was dead in sins and in trespasses. And maybe this morning, some of us need to be reminded of that. I deserve nothing. Because I will tell you, if there's one thing that will kill off your worship of God, one thing that will actually bring like a cancer spiritually to this church, to your marriage, to your friendships, it's going to be entitlement. Because after all, all the other sins that we so often see in the church, adultery, you know, stealing, lying, underneath those sins, is it not entitlement? How many times have I sat down with a couple, they're experiencing marital difficulties, perhaps there's been an affair or some lying or some cheating going on. It's not too long before it becomes very clear that the attitude of the heart which lent itself to this situation was entitlement. I deserve this. I deserve better. I think I just deserve a little bit more. And so often, however subtle it may be, It's our attitude towards God. We almost relate to God like we're taxpayers. I've paid my council tax, you know, like, why haven't you fixed this? Why haven't you done that? I've been going to Grace London for a couple years now. Like, clearly you owe me something, God. God's like, oh, you've been such a faithful church member. You've served every Sunday. Like, here's some blessings. We know that's not what the Bible teaches. But very often that's the way we behave. That's the way I tend to relate to God when I'm operating in this place of the flesh. And I need to be reminded that I deserve nothing. But that's not the full, that's not the full message of the gospel. It's not like you suck. End of story. Let's pray. God bless you. Be warmed, be filled. (laughs) Can you imagine if church was like that? It doesn't end there. This great reversal has happened. You deserve judgment. You've been given mercy. And I almost just imagine as Paul's like, you know, penning this letter that he gets to that point and he's like by the mercy of God and I almost wonder if he just stops and just sets the quill down and just says the mercy of God because we all know Saul was a murderer we all know that Saul was one who opposed the very way that he now preaches and in one way or another we all opposed it 
One of my greatest uh, memories of um, my interactions with, with my wife was when we were um, dating. And I was a fairly new Christian. And uh, I was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area. And um, after I became a Christian, I really struggled there to like live out my Christian faith for the first year and a half. And so I did what everybody does when they struggle. You go to Bible school. I'm like, oh, I'm not doing very well. I should go to Bible school. That sounds like a great idea. I had no aspirations to be like a pastor or anything like that. I just said, I need to get out of the San Francisco area. I need to learn the Bible. It'd be great. So I meet this girl named Lindsay. God bless her. We've been married for 16 years now, which is crazy. And we started dating. And I shared with her a little bit of my testimony, but not everything. But I knew as things got more serious, I I needed to be honest with her about how I had lived. And from my earlier years when I was a teenager, I just, I hated God. I hated Christianity. I wanted to live for myself. I became sexually promiscuous at a very young age. I started abusing substances at a very young age. When I was 16, I paid for an abortion. Like, it just got darker and darker and darker and darker. And I was so ashamed And I knew in this relationship there was going to come a moment where I was going to share this with this girl that I was dating. And she came from like a great Christian home, but she wasn't like a self-righteous homeschooler or anything like that. Like she just loved Jesus. She just had a great, healthy home. By the way, when she tells her conversion story, I love it because it reminds me that every conversion is radical. It doesn't matter, like, you know, we get used to hearing the stories like, I was shooting heroin and then I got saved. And you're like, yay, but the self-righteous you know, homeschooler is also a radical conversion. Amazing. So that was, you know, her story was very different than mine. And so I muster up the courage and the strength. I want to share this with her. I want to share about my life. And I was very afraid that I was going to be rejected and she would have every right to do so. In my mind, I was damaged goods. Like I had done so much evil and wrong. I knew that Christ had had forgiven me, but the, all the, the, the depth and the riches of that hadn't quite set in for me. And so on this one moment, I I muster up the strength to tell her and I tell her my whole story and I'm like weeping as I do. And she looks at me and she simply says this, I see you as as clean through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I will never forget that moment because it was one of the most remarkable displays of the gospel to me. It's like, I deserve nothing. And yet Christ has made me clean. Do you know that? Do you know the mercy of God this morning? Do you, do you need to be reminded of the mercy of God? I think you do. I know I do. It begins there. That is the basis upon which Paul the Apostle makes his appeal. It is nothing but the mercy of God. And this mercy is what compels us. This mercy is what supplies us. It's not, we're not left to our own devices, our own strength, our own resources. This is the mercy of God. It's the basis upon which you're to do what? Present your bodies. Stop there. I love the language that Paul uses because it's very holistic, if I can use that term. It's, it's everything. It's comprehensive. It's present your, your bodies as a living sacrifice. Earlier in Romans, Paul said that we used to present our bodies to sin. We used to present our members to sin, meaning we lived the whole of our lives. We offered our lives to things that were anti-God. But now everything has changed. We are to present 
our bodies to God. And what stands out to me practically, by the way, is that this whole idea of worship, it does not happen automatically. This whole idea of presenting your life to God, growing in maturity and all of this, it doesn't happen involuntary. That's not how it happens. One of the biggest lessons that that I've known for many years, but I'm still learning, is this. No one is going to drift into Christ-likeness. It's not just going to, you wake up one morning like, oh my goodness, I'm more like Jesus. Like it just happened. And your spouse is like, wow, like overnight. You're just like Christ, like it's just shining. Like what has happened? I don't know. I didn't do anything. It just doesn't happen like that. God works in you both to will and to do, Paul says in Philippians. You don't just drift into Christ-likeness. We respond. All of life, our worship is all a response to God. We present ourselves, present our bodies to God. Everything that we do as a living sacrifice, he says. We know the beautiful imagery that Paul uses in his letter to the Corinthian church, how our bodies are now temples of the Holy Spirit. That, that blows my mind. Like that God himself would make his home in me and then work through me in, in my life. That, that's astounding to me. It's, it's one of the most beautiful things about, about Christianity. God, you know, cleanses us and he, he resides in us. It's unbelievable. A temple of the Holy Spirit, which produces incredible integrity in my life. God sees everything. He sees what I see. He goes where I go. (laughs) And he causes me to care about what he cares about and to see what he sees and to do what he is calling me to do. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, it's important for us to remember that the sacrifice that we offer is not our death. It is our life. Because there's only one sacrifice that ultimately was required for payment for sin. And that was the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made once and for all when he died on the cross for us. The sacrifice that we offer is our lives in gratitude and service. We see this all over the New Testament. A few quick examples. In 1 Peter, the apostle says, You yourselves, like living stones, chapter 2, verse 5, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, to be a holy priesthood. It's incredible. The book of Hebrews 13 says, Through him, speaking of Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. See, one of the truths that I need to be reminded of, especially as we begin to talk about a lifestyle of, of worship, is that this kind of sacrifice is not given in order to obtain favor with God. It's given because you already have favor with God. right? What would be very dangerous for us is to think that, that our sacrifice our offering of ourselves, our our passionate pursuit to follow Jesus in London, commit to this church community, and to pursue all these things, a huge mistake would be for you and I to think that somehow I'm earning points with God. Or to think that somehow I'm like paying God back. Now, I don't know about you, but I have like a huge 
guilt complex when it comes to anybody giving me like a, a gift, especially financially. You know, if somebody gives me a gift, I always feel guilty and I feel unsettled until I can like pay them back. And there's been many times in my life where it's so humbling where you, you realize, you, you, I don't know if you've ever received a gift where you just can't pay it back. You want to try, but it's just pathetic, even if you did. It's so humbling because I want to feel like I can prove something. I, 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 was, I had a work ethic like that, the way that I was raised. Like, you've got to work hard. You've got to you know, kind of prove yourself. I felt like I was always in my life trying to show myself worthy by the things that I could do, by the way in which I could repay back people who have given me so much. But the gospel has completely turned that upside down. I could never repay, nor should I, because any attempt for you and I to repay God diminishes the beauty and the glory of the sacrifice that he's made, because we could never pay it. It's like my kids, we, um, it's so cute. I mean, it's like totally wrong theologically, but it's super cute when you see it. My, um, I have three daughters. Um, my oldest is almost 14. So there's that. Um, <laughs> So if nothing else, if you could just pray for me and my, my family, that would be amazing. Um, I have an 11-year-old who's also going to be going into secondary school in September. You could also pray for that. Um, but then I have a 6-year-old, and her name is Paige, and she is like the diva of the family. She's just, she's so dramatic. She totally gets it from her mother. Like, she's just super dramatic. Uh, that was a joke. My wife's totally introverted. I'm the crazy one. Um, like, I went on a short trip the other week, and she's like, Daddy... I'll never forget you. And I was like, oh, that's like really cute, but do you know something I don't? I'm not planning on dying, you know. Just very, very dramatic. So we gave her these, these gifts. And like one day she brings back like this little coin. She's like, dad, I just want to give this to you. I'm like, oh, that's super cute. But like you do realize the enormity of the sacrifice I've given you doesn't really compare to the little coin. Super cute. But in so many ways, I thought like that's a metaphor, you know, like as if, I could somehow repay God or if somehow even worse that God needs what I have to offer. Isn't that a crazy thought? For some reason, we, we tend to think that like, God, I'm pretty great. I could definitely be a part of Grace London. Like I definitely have something, you know, here to, to, you know, I, I, my presence here is going to like radically transform this, you know, community. God, I really think that your kingdom would advance in like strategic ways in London if you employed me at your service. And God's in heaven, like, oh, like you drive such a hard bargain. All right, I'll bring you into my kingdom. I'll use you. Like we could use a person like you. Like that is so ridiculous. It's unbelievable that we would even begin to think thoughts like that. We do not offer ourselves as a living sacrifice in order to earn God's favor. It's because we have God's favor. It's because we are accepted in Christ. Grace has saved us. We could not pay God back. We dare not pay God back. We sacrifice rather out of joy in response to everything that God has given to us. We respond with a sacrificial love. It's a sacrifice of thanksgiving. I once heard that the value of something is determined by the amount you're willing to give for it. And of course, that's true whenever you try to sell something. I don't know how many of you, um, you know, sell things on like Gumtree when you're desperate um, for cash. But I have all this old like music gear from back in the day. My kids always make fun of me about. They're like, Dad used to be in a band. So lame. Like that was maybe cool in the 90s. It's not cool anymore. Um, so I like to sell all this stuff on like Gumtree. And I'm just offended when somebody, you know, like lowballs me. I'm like, I've got this piece of like vintage gear. And they're like, I'll give you 50 pounds. I'm like, get out of my face. <laughs> 
don't ever email me again. You know, like the value of something is determined by how much one is willing to give for it. And friends, what London needs to see is the greatness of Jesus. And that is shown through the way in which you offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. When people say, why do you give up your Sunday mornings? Jesus is worth it. Why do you go to life group? Why would you do that? My daughter asked the other week, she's like, dad, none of my friends have as many human beings over to their house as we do. (laughs) Why do we do that? And I'm like, oh no, I can already sense some like pastor kid resentment, you know, like brewing in her heart. I'm like, I'm like, sweetheart, I know it's like annoying at times, but like God's called us to like love people. And yes, we need healthy rhythms and, and whatnot. Yes, but like we're, we have a mission in life, like to love people. We want to open up our, 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 our home. We want to bring people in. We want to love these people. Why do we do that? Because of what Christ has given to me. It's the love of Christ that compels me. Douglas Moo is a great commentator. He um, writes this on Romans. He says here, God is not demanding the destruction of our lives, but the full energy of your life when he calls you to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. The full energy saying, God, all I have is yours. My life is yours. My work is yours. My marriage is yours. My kids are yours. Everything that I have belongs to you. And it's out of just gratitude. I'm sure you've heard this before, but Jonathan Edwards, one of the great theologians um, in American history, said that essentially the difference between a moralist and a Christian is that the moralist you know, obeys out of obligation, but the Christian obeys out of sheer delight. God, you're so good. And in response to that, here I am. My wife and I were really tested in that when, as Andrew shared a moment ago, when we were, you know, called to leave L.A. and to, to move away. It's just a huge deal, especially for the stage of, uh, of life we at, especially for, um, for my wife and for my kids and, and all of that. And I remember just, you know, wrestling through that and praying, like, God, are you really calling us to move? And, you know, my wife and I would have these conversations, but like, oh, but we have this stuff or we have these things or we have those things. And And one morning, my wife and I were just having this conversation. We came together to this awareness, this reminder, rather, like everything we have belongs to God, and everything we have was only the result of us following God's call 10 years prior. But you just, the longer time goes on, you just kind of get used to it. You're like, yeah, of course I'm a Christian. Of course I'm part of a good church. Of course I'm, you know, part of this, that, and the other. You just get used to it. We need to be reminded of how incredible it is. Even Christian community, for those of you who come here this weekend, you might be a little jaded on Christian community. Maybe you're in a season right now where there's some difficulty, you know, kind of happening um, in, amongst some of your relationships. You would do well to remember uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's words. He wrote that great book, Life Together. I don't know if you've ever read it, but of course he's writing out of a context of Nazi Germany and all the persecution that he faced. And I remember reading that book and he says this line in there. He says, let those who to this day have taken for granted Christian community get down on their knees and thank God from the bottom of their heart that they even know another Christian. Like, oh, that'll kill off entitlement. Like, you should be thankful that you even know a Christian. We get entitled, like, oh, I don't really like these people. That's annoying. I don't really like that song. We sing it a lot. Like, wait, a new song? Are you kidding me? It's too much. Like, too much. <laughs> You know what, today, let's begin this weekend by saying, like, it's the grace of God that I even know a Christian. Like, we should be walking these halls going, like, 
amazing. <laughs> like it's, I, just, I sit in the back of this room and I'm like, these people love Jesus. This is astounding. Never allow that sense of awe and wonder of the grace of God transforming us. Leave your hearts and minds. Present ourselves holy and acceptable to God, he says. What honors him in a way that honors him living in a way that reflects him. And he says, this is your reasonable service or your spiritual worship. Translations differ on the way that that's rendered, but they are two sides to the same coin. It's reasonable. Like, th- this, is what you, this is the proper response. And it is spiritual as opposed to being ceremonial. It, it's something that, that is willed. It's something that, that you offer willingly to God. And as a result of that, he begins to expound on the way that works out in life. And it reminds us that there are unreasonable ways to worship. An unreasonable way of worship is fear. The attitude in our hearts that, like, just, I fear God and I'm just going to, like, do these little bits that he wants me to do, and then he might give me some, some kind of favor. That was definitely the Greco-Roman mindset. You know, the gods were like a, an unstable parent. You never knew what you were going to get, and you had to appease the gods. And so many people bring that mindset into their Christian life as if God's like this unstable father, like, what am I going to get today? Many of us grew up in environments like that. God is not like that. James says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation, never a shadow of turning. We know what to expect from him. That's an unreasonable way to worship, is responding out of fear. Another way of unreasonable worship is to give God portions as though he had to earn it. Like, God, if you do this for me, and if you obey my rules, then I'll respond to you. Paul would have us push these things out of our hearts and minds when we remember the glorious gospel of God. And it raises a question in my heart. I think it's a question that God would want to raise in all of our hearts is why wouldn't we do this? What is the reason that we would hold back? What is the little story replaying in your mind of, "Uh, if you do this, if you say, God, I'm just, I'm laying it all down. God, here's my friendships. Here's my relationships. Here's my work. Here's my money. Here's my time. Here's my gifts. Why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we worship? Why wouldn't we offer ourselves? However you answer that question, it's unreasonable. That's what Paul's saying. However you answer that question, why wouldn't you? Well, because I'm really busy. Unreasonable. Well, I don't really know if God's done enough for me. Unreasonable. <laughs> Paul is saying, like, just do the, do the math. Like, this is amazing. God has done this for you. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. In a moment, I'm going to just invite us to respond to that, as was mentioned earlier. Just some songs, some time to pray, just some time to, to begin this weekend right.
But I just want to note a few summary thoughts about this, and they actually are alliterated, so sorry. There you go. <laughs> but it's so important that we do see this. this. This worship is costly. There is a cost to that. It's surrendering. It's giving up. It's, it's giving up control, which many of us, even if you say, oh, I don't like control, it usually means you're a control freak, by the way. <laughs> we, we all like control. But the reality is you're not in control. Whatever control you think you have in your life is an illusion. In fact, if any of you have suffered, then you will know whatever control you thought you had was in reality an illusion. In suffering, you don't lose control. You realize you were never in control in the first place. There's a cost. But it's a joyful cost. This call to worship is costly, but it's also corporate. And I really want you to see that. Paul's not just speaking to you as a private, autonomous individual. He's, he's saying you all. It's plural. He's talking to the church. He's saying all of you together. That's why all the ethics matter. That's why when Andrew will begin to talk about love and the way you treat one another, this is how we, we worship. We worship together. It's the way that we interact. It is highly relational. That this call to worship is corporate. And that's one of the things I love about when we sing together, though I know that worship is far beyond the, the songs that we sing. It's the whole of our life, absolutely. But there's something beautiful and wonderful about when we sing together. We're all singing the, the same words together. It's a display and demonstration of our unity. We're all together saying, we come from different backgrounds. We come from different cultures, whatever. Jesus Christ is our everything, and we're going to sing about it. We're going to sing about it together. May Grace London be known as a place where the name of Jesus is high and exalted and magnified. And when anyone asks you, why on earth do you people get together? You could simply say, it's Jesus. It is Jesus. This is a corporate call to worship. It's costly. It's corporate. But it's also continuous. It's not just a one-time thing. Go to the weekend away. Get your little top up. You know, oh, I feel super good now. Like, I'm going to go back and like crush it at my job and you know, kind of like drift away. Um, this is a continuous call to worship. You know, so many of us, to use a simple analogy, um, we're like a match when we should be like a candle. Uh, my six-year-old is fascinated by matches. She, she's like, strike it again. You know, I'm like, it's, like, it's exciting. We're like, whoa. She's like, oh my gosh, it's like magic. You know, that's just the, so we had a barbecue last week because the sun came out, hallelujah. And so I'm like lighting the bag and she's like, oh my gosh. But then it quickly disappears. And I see so many men and women in the church whose lives are like a match and not a candle. They're all about the spark. They're all about the excitement. Like, whoosh, this is amazing. I love this song. <laughs> and it fizzes out. And two weeks later, like, I'm mad at God. I'm leaving this church. I'm upset with my life group leader. For them, it's about this particular, like, moment. But take that match, light a candle. What does it do? It remains. It remains and it brings light to a room and that's what God has called us to be. And I'm just, I guess personally, I'm just a little tired of this, like the hype Christian culture. I don't know how much you see it, but it's, everything's all about hype. Like this Sunday is going to be the best Sunday ever. It's going to be the best sermon ever. The best worship ever. It's going to be hilarious. It's going to be incredible. And I'm at the point in life now, I'm not cynical by the way, 
But I'm at the point now where I'm, when I meet somebody and they're like, hey, tell me about your church. I'm like, you know what? It's not always going to be exciting, but we're going to call you to die, pick up your cross, die to yourself, follow Jesus, and just like stop living for yourself. It's going to be good for you. You may hate half the worship, but we don't care. Just come and follow Jesus. <laughs> That's like the sign I want to put on the door now. I'm like, you know what? Just die. <laughs> just pick up your cross. I mean, obviously more than that. <laughs> But it's out of that desire, I want, to, I want us to be the candle. I want us to be the candle. And lastly, this is, it's comprehensive. And I end with that because when I say comprehensive, I mean every corner of your life. Your time, your money, your thought life, what you do when you're on your phone, the way that you speak to others. There's no area that's off limits. And I just think this is a good moment for us to just pause and just confess to God what areas in our lives are we not offering to God? In what areas of our lives are we not worshiping our glorious God and Savior? In fact, why don't we all stand to attention? I just want to pray for us and invite the musicians to come up and we'll just spend the next 13 minutes of our time and just, and just respond to him. There's going to be some people at the back that are, of course, there to pray with you and for you. But I would just challenge you with this. Let's hold nothing back. Say, God, I'm yours. My marriage is yours. Whatever area the Holy Spirit is bringing to light, whatever area he's causing you to realize you're not worshiping in, recognize that right now. And as Andrew prayed for us earlier, let's repent of that right now. Let's just say, God, I want to worship you in this area of my life. It belongs to you. As we pray, I'm just going to ask you to put out your hands like, Just put them out like you're going to receive something. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. You are unbelievably good. We deserve nothing, and yet you have given us everything. You forgive us, you cleanse us, you make us new, you give us an inheritance forever. Clothe us in righteousness. It's incredible. And as a response, we worship you. And just as our hands are open, God, we both want to receive from you and offer ourselves to you. We just say, God, here we are. Just take us. Whatever area of our lives we're not worshiping you in, God, may we just offer that to you freely. Would you fill us? Would you renew our minds? so that we might know what your will is, your good, perfect, and acceptable will. In the name of Jesus.